Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. What's the latest in Canadian politics? Well, Dr. Lori Turnbull, the director of the School of Public Administration at Dalhousie University, will join us to talk about that. Doug Ford picked his cabinet on Friday, and although there are some new faces, it seems the Premier has pretty much opted to keep the team that he had last time around. We'll get some reaction to that. And how is the globe reacting to the U.S. Supreme Court abortion ruling? Protests all over the world. We'll talk about that and give you some details. It's all coming up on the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. To begin with today, well, there's trouble in paradise, I guess, if you're a federal conservative member right now. Uh, in an exclusive interview on the West Block, former conservative Senate leader Marjorie LeBreton has expressed worries for the party that she's worked for for decades over what she calls the divisive direction that now seems to be going toward. As Global's Abigail Beeman reports, LeBreton is pushing back against the dangerous rhetoric that's growing popular among its members, including those who are running for the leadership. I'm very worried for our party. Marjorie LeBreton, retired conservative Senate leader, decades of experience with the party and widely respected. In an exclusive interview on the West Block, she says she feels she no longer has a home in the conservative party. I really fear that the great accommodation that was reached between Stephen Harper and Peter McKay in the, uh, in the fall of 2003 is, is fracturing beyond repair. Causing her the most concern, members who embrace convoy protests. The whole idea of, of wrecking a, a cornerstone of conservatism in law and order was sort of really, really upsets me, and I'm very, very worried. So, uh, problems uh, with the Conservative Party from within, uh, which is somewhat problematic, I would think. And uh, to talk about this and, and other issues, I'm uh, so pleased to welcome uh, Dr. Laurie Turnbull back to the program. Uh, Dr. Turnbull, of course, is the Director of, of School of Public Administration at Dalhousie University. Uh, Laurie, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for being with us again today. Good morning, Bill. Thanks so much for having me. Well, the uh, federal conservatives like to consider themselves a, a party with a big tent. Apparently, it's not big enough uh, for uh, Marjorie LeBreton and, and Pierre Polyev, who she really seem, seemed to single out. What's going on here? Yeah, I mean, this has been, a, I think, a pretty long and very public conversation around whether this is really a viable project, this being the conservative party and in its current form. And so she's thinking back, like, I mean, she would have been a key part of those conversations to unite the right. And she was a key actor in, you know, kind of helping Harper to stabilize the conservative government when he was in power. And she was the point person in the Senate, right? Like she was a big, mm -hmm. big part of how it actually worked on the ground. And so I think, you know, for her, sure, there would have been people in that tent that she didn't agree with on everything. And she, there were probably people who, you know, didn't agree with her on everything. And that was fine because the point was we all agree on these fundamental tenets of what it means to be conservative and therefore we can work together. But now, you know, as she points out, there's the consensus around those fundamental pieces seems to be breaking down. And so then if it does, right, like for example, law and order, if everybody's not on board with that, then what do you have left to unite you? Like if it's, if it's not those key things that, conservatives, you know, d despite different differing on maybe other things, you know, you've got those kind of fundamental pieces that give you a reason to be together. But if you don't have that, then it seems to be very difficult to keep the party all gathered in the same tent. And so she's now, you know, understandably stressed out about what the, the party's prospects for winning government are going to be if they can't get it together. 
Yeah, she talked about that in in the interview on the West Block, uh, specifically about winning, winning ability. I mean, that's that's the the end game here, and uh, the concern seemed to be: look at if, if we go down this direction that Pierre Poliev seems to be taking the party, uh, the chances of winning are slim. Yeah, because he seems to be moving away from those pieces that you can get broader agreement on. Like in those pieces, like like Law and Order, for example, allow the party to grow in a kind of you know, in a direction that's more toward the center, the party is able to form government, you know, by bringing together people, again, who don't necessarily agree on everything, but who can agree with with some of those pieces. And so you can get people who maybe typically move their vote around or people who sometimes vote liberal to say, yep, but I believe in what the conservatives are doing this time. And, you know, it's on the basis, again, of those fundamental pieces that you can find something in common. But if people, Pierre Polyev is moving away from those things. And she gives the example of the support for the convoy, which she, she has defined as illegal and saying, look, you know, once you cross that line, you're asking fundamental questions about what conservatism really means to you. And so if he's doing that, then he's trying to grow the party more to the right than he is toward the center, which is weird because we're, I, we're seeing this odd thing in Canadian politics now where we know that they're, you know, can, we know kind of have, we have a sense of where, a lot of Canadians are. We know that there's a lot of Canadians around the centre and there are increasingly, you know, like no political parties to meet them there. The progressive side is moving more to the left. The conservatives seem to be moving more to the right, particularly if Pierre Polyev wins this thing. And so who's meeting people in that centre? It's very odd. Uh, amazingly, though, uh, Senator LeBreton, not the only dissenting voice over the weekend, uh, also uh, Conservative MP Michelle Rempel-Garner, uh, who toyed with the mm-hmm. idea, actually, of leaving the party and running uh, in Alberta to, to head the uh, United Conservative Party. She changed her mind after about 10 minutes there. But anyway, a rather <laughs> scathing review of not just the Alberta Party, though, Laurie, but the federal Conservatives, too. In part, I won't read the whole thing here, but... Uh, She says, in both parties, there have been squabbles that have erupted into pages on the national media, public meltdowns, nearly missed physical fights, coups, smear jobs, leaked recordings and confidential emails, lack of consensus on a number of different issues, and long, long meetings where members have been publicly castigated. Uh, That doesn't sound like one happy camper. Not really. That doesn't sound like things are going all that well in there. And I mean, it seems to me, to be honest, over time, conservatives do have this this ability, willingness to go after one another. And so when they fight, you know, it's not even like the Cretchen Martin years in, for the liberals. The, the conservatives really go after one another. I don't blame Michelle Rempel-Garner for not wanting to take on the task of uniting the UCP in Ontario, or sorry, in Alberta. I never understood why she would want to do that to begin with. I mean, to be a provincial premier at a time where, as she says, the party is so fractured and she'd be coming in from the Ottawa context. She's She had this issue too of not having been a member of the party. And so I think that was that was a problem. Like when the party said they were going to overlook that for her, that was going to bring out a lot of hostility toward her, the sense that the rules were being bent for her. And so I think she would have been, you know, pretty well screwed from day one in terms of trying to win that thing. And so why do it if you know this is what you're facing? But she's, you know, I think she's right. You know, she's making these points about how the parties are operating and how difficult it is to to keep things together. And this isn't just about the principles. Like Marjorie LeBreton is talking about what does it really mean to be conservative? Michelle Rempel-Garner is talking about how people are behaving. Right. And the lack of civility in the between the different factions of the party. 
Interestingly enough, too, and I mean, I understand your point exactly. You're like, okay, I'm going to back from this Alberta thing, but to take a shot at, at the the caucus, the Conservative caucus in Ottawa right now. Of course, Candace Bergen, the interim leader, has has denied that. So that's that's not really what's going on here. But do we do we just determine where the smoke is fire that there's something going on within that caucus? Oh, I think that's probably a safe bet. And I think ever since you know we saw like when when you see a party turf a leader like that. And, you know, obviously the party had the the majority vote was to get rid of Aaron O'Toole. There was still a good chunk of people, including Michelle Rempel-Garner, who supported him and who thought that getting, you know, that whether or not you're really excited about Aaron O'Toole to make a move on the leader at that point was the wrong thing to do. I don't think the party has ever come back together again. I don't think the caucus has come back together again after that vote and after the caucus has been divided in terms of how it's responding to the trucker convoy. And it's good. That's going to flare up again if the convoy comes back to Ottawa this week. And so I don't think those fences have been mended and we're seeing that go on. And the question is going to be whether the new leader is going to have any sort of tools and you know, levers to be able to bring the caucus together again in one united movement. If, if somebody like Sheree wins or Patrick Brown, who do not have a seat in caucus, how are they going to do that? Like, honestly, like, how are they even going to, you know, start to build the caucus back together again when they're not a member of it themselves? And so that's where Polyev would have a significant advantage, I think, or Aitchison, you know, to be honest, or Leslie Lewis. But it's still going to be really tough because there's, you know, I don't think Candace Bergen has been able to keep this, you know, kind of keep the issues under the roof for that party. And, Michelle Rempel-Garner is right. You know, when you see things leak like that, that's a sign that people are seriously unhappy and they're willing to put the party on the line to show how unhappy they are. You know, there's, uh, that's an interesting point uh, about Candace Bergen and, and what she's done. Uh, I'm going to reference Ronna Ambrose here because, I mean, when Stephen Harper uh, stepped down as, as head of the party, of course, Ronna Ambrose was the interim leader. Or as she said it, she says, I am the leader in the interim. I'm not the interim leader. And that sounds like wordsmithing. But she, she instituted a sense of calm and unity when, while she was in that position. Uh, Bob Ray did the same thing with the federal liberals uh, when, when he was the interim leader for a period of time. Uh, uh, Candace Bergen seems yeah. to be running around trying to set up, put out fires just about every second day here. That's it. And I mean, honestly, and I don't mean to sound uncharitable here, but I kind of feel like saying, Ms. Bergen, you had one job. <laughs> like just yeah, yeah. try to keep things calm until they pick the next person and that's it. And Rana Ambrose was like your dream interim leader. You know, like I think, you know, she she was that person who did such a good job that people were saying, oh God, I wish she could stay and do this forever because she was amazing at it. And that's what you want, right? Like you want the leader, no matter what they are, no matter if they're interim or short-term or whatever you want to call it, you want the leader to leave the party better than they found it. And I think there are ways you could make the argument that Ambrose absolutely did that. Whereas Bergen, she has not been able to just kind of keep the ship steady. Instead, there's constant existential angst that's spilling out over in, you know, into public conversation. There's a sense that the party can't keep itself together. And so it's really, you know, I, I don't think she's at this point anyway, you know, the leadership is going to be decided in a couple of months time. I don't think it is a situation where she's handing over a more secure and, you know, like steady project than she found. I think that hasn't happened. This is about the fourth or fifth week now where after, after the Sunday political shows, uh, this, there's another fire to put us. Some conservatives taking a shot at another conservative. Uh, 
this is a party that wants to present itself to Canada as a government in waiting. Uh, what with what's going on here on, on a pretty consistent basis here, Laurie? What does that do for that that perception that they're trying to create? Well, that's it, right? Because I think it puts them in a really difficult stop, spot in terms of asking people to support them. Because in at the same time as it's not clear how you know the party is going to keep itself together, it's not clear whether one of these voices, one of these factions is going to become the dominant one that brings a sense of unity by by way of sort of quashing other voices. You know, like if, if Pierre Polyev wins this, are other people going to kind of pack up their stuff and leave and say, well, I don't feel comfortable in this anymore. And then what's going to happen? Is there going to be another split that's formal and that another party takes over? Are we going to see somebody like you know, if Jean Charest wins, is he going to pull this thing closer to the center? And this is going to be a revival of a more progressive conservative party, because we see that successful model on the provincial side, right? Like you see someone like Doug Ford and in my other home province, Tim Houston, they never talk about being conservative. It's almost like it's post-partisan. They're just governing. They're governing from a practical perspective. They want to govern for everybody. Whereas the federal conservatives seem to be doing the polar opposite, where they need to be wrapped up in these questions about who they really are and how conservative they are, right? And like, I, it's hard to compare the provincial, provincial and federal because it's a whole different ball of wax in terms of how many people you're trying to herd. But there's still a lesson to be learned here from the provincial conservative slash progressive conservative premiers who seem to be going about this existential exercise completely differently. Uh, you mentioned, we've got a couple of minutes left here, you mentioned uh, uh, about the uh, the convoy, of course, and the uh, the insurrection, the uh, uh, the occupation of, of Ottawa back in February. Uh, we're told that part two is going to be happening this Friday, Canada Day. Now, we don't know who's going to be descending upon there. We are, have been told that some conservative leaders have already met with the organizers of this thing. How's the city preparing? Are we going to see barricades up there? I mean, surely police have learned something from February. Yeah, I mean, now things are pretty different in that you can't drive on Wellington Street, which is the street that's, that Parliament Hill is actually on. And so that alone should be able to give a bit more, um, you know, capacity for law enforcement to be able to manage the flow of traffic. And they've got lots of events planned. And so I think, they, you know, there's a, there's a sense of, of readiness, I think, that you didn't see before the trucker convoy in January and February. I think there's a lot of expectation also, you know, that all eyes are on how this is going to be managed should a, a convoy reappear. So things like, you know, kind of embedding yourself and parking your truck and taking the tires off and stuff like that. Like, I mean, I, I can't imagine any of that would, would be tolerated ever again. But also I think there's, you know, there's an expectation that law enforcement really enforces the law, which was a big issue, you know, as we heard mm -hmm. reported a lot what happened in back in the winter was it wasn't that there weren't laws in place. It was that people weren't seeing them through. And so, you know, tickets, like do the things that you need to do to be able to manage the situation. And so I don't think we're going to see any kind of a real revival of what we saw back in the winter, but yeah, you know, it sounds like there's organization, there's people are going to be coming to protest and that's perfectly fine. Like peaceful protest, legal protest is, is absolutely wonderful. And that's what, that's what Canada day is for in a lot of ways, right? Like say what you want to say about the country. But any kind of, you know, disturbance to the point that, that the law is being broken, I don't think that's going to be flying this time. They haven't actually uh, made any sort of a determination as to what it is they're protesting. Is it, I mean, the, the vaccine mandates are all but gone right now. And everything they were, you know, crowing about back in February seems to have passed us by right now. So is this just a protest for the sake of a protest? They just don't like this government or any government? <laughs> 
Well, I think that's a fantastic point. Like, I think that the the purposes behind the convoy have totally morphed into, you know, a kind of disgruntlement with Justin Trudeau, with the liberal government, with the presence of government in your life, with, you know, the fact that you want your freedom, whatever that's supposed to mean. And so I think it's sort of a, it's a very emotional thing, as opposed to we're coming to protest something because we want to reach a certain objective. Like even back in, in the winter, the objective was ridiculous and insurrectionist around getting rid of the government and having the governor general replace it with some band of people who had shown up to protest. But, you know, at least there was, however illegitimate that was, there was the stated goal. Whereas there is, I don't think there's a stated goal now. It's just a sort of, we don't like, we don't like how present government has been in our lives. And so we're going to come in and protest that, which you're allowed to do, right? Like sure, that's fine. Sure. But there's also, I think, things that run deep at this point, a frustration with the price of gas, the price of food, the fact that government isn't doing enough to respond to the crisis that people are facing on a financial level. And there seems to be no relief for that. And so how people are feeling about those sorts of issues, that's all rolled into, you know, a much harder to define project. And I think for the conservatives that have decided they want to participate in this, that's, that's the kind of energy they're hoping to harness is to be yeah. able to kind of channel that aggravation and sense of irritation with the government writ large. Uh, Dr. Laurie Turnbull from Dalhousie University. Uh, as always, Laurie, thank you so much for this. Hopefully you have a nice, quiet Canada Day weekend, <laughs> and uh, we'll, we'll talk again next week. Take care. Sounds great. You too. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Ontario Premier Doug Ford has announced his new 30-person cabinet, including former Solicitor General Sylvia Jones. She is the uh, new Deputy Premier and Health Minister, taking over from Christine Elliott, of course, who didn't run. Many of the ministers remained in the same portfolios as, uh, as they did in the last government. There are a few new faces, though, including Ford's nephew, Michael Ford, who is now the Minister of Citizenship and Multiculturalism. Uh, the Premier says that he wants Ontario politicians, and especially his cabinet, to work together for the province. We're ready to unite behind a positive vision. Ready to unite behind a plan for the future of Ontario. And I truly believe, I feel it in the bottom of my heart, that this is a government that must represent everyone. So, uh, reaction to this? Well, it's mixed, uh, as you might expect, uh, to analyze what's going on and uh, who's doing what now. So pleased to welcome back to the program, Mohammed Ali, Senior Consultant for Crestview Strategies. Uh, Mohammed, pleasure to have you back on the show. I hope you're doing well these days. I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Good. Uh, any surprises as far as you were concerned with the announcements last week? Uh, you know, I think the, the one surprise, and I think everyone's sort of talking about this, is the, the fact that there was not actually a lot of change. Uh, usually after an election, it gives you the opportunity to uh, reset, refresh, put some, uh, you know, you know, new faces in different portfolios, especially those who've been kind of uh, facing a little bit of a tough file or, or whatnot or deserve a, a promotion of some sort. Uh, you know, it's people like Stephen Lecce, Steve Clark, and others, you, I would assume that they would have probably gotten moved, but... Uh, they kept it all um, as is, and it seems that the reason is for that is they want continuity in the short term because this is a pretty quick turnaround from election to cabinet. Uh, yeah, uh, Carolyn Maroney, as you mentioned, still going to stay in transportation. Um, Doug Downey, who had a real fight to maintain his, uh, retain his seat rather uh, up in the Barrie area, uh, is back as attorney general. Is it is it a sign that the the, the Ford is pretty much uh, pleased and content with the actions and and with the the track record of the people that he's got in there now? I think there's a, a mix. I think one is 
you know, this premier is all about loyalty to to a fault sometimes. So uh, I think he he wanted to keep certain people in certain portfolios, regardless of, of how they felt. Uh, sometimes cabinet ministers get an opportunity to say, hey, look, like I need a, I want something new. I want them to do something else or I want a promotion, whatever it may be. Uh, there's sometimes areas of, of opportunity to uh, negotiate, depending on, you know, your profile and such. But it, what it looks like is because of the quick turnaround to, to getting cabinet and now they're going to return to the legislature very quickly to pass the budget that they had tabled like days before the election writ, uh, was dropped. Uh, it, it, I don't think they had enough time to figure out what they wanted to do. And I think in a, uh, in a rush, instead of putting the wrong person in the wrong place, they sort of did this. So I wouldn't be surprised that come September that we might have another uh, bit of a shuffle. Be- just because there are people who, who you would have assumed, you know, you kind of sometimes need a new uh, fresh face to kind of help with stakeholders and such like that. There is also a big fight with the teachers, teachers unions. So Stephen Lecce is sort of be front and center for that. But um, you know, it is. Uh, it looks like he just wants to continue driving some of the plans forward that he was already in motion and does not want to rock the boat too much. Yeah, Lecce is one that I was surprised about simply because he's uh, he's 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 taken the bumps and bruises of being education minister, and you would have thought that maybe he just wants to you know have a fresh face and do something different there. But uh, and they're heading into uh, contract negotiations now too. But on the other hand, I guess maybe Premier Ford thinks you know you're the guy. I mean, you've done it before and you can do it again. Uh, all right, let's uh, let's talk about who didn't make it in cabinet, and more specifically, uh, Lisa McLeod. Uh, who's been in cabinet, uh, well, in a couple of different portfolios in the first term of the Ford government. Uh, she's on the outside looking in now. Yeah, you know what? I think uh, in, a, in, a, in a funny way, it's sort of a surprise but not surprise sort of situation with her. Um, you know, I think the culmination of this, the headlines from this past election with her taking $44,000 from her riding association to top up her salary, I think really did it in because that's something the premier really dislikes. As abuse of money, especially abuse of sort of supporters' money, uh, and she she kind of freely did that. She didn't have a very good reputation amongst you know in, in, internal folks uh, from a personality, from a you know all that stuff. And then stakeholders weren't there uh, very supportive of her either. And you remember the famous autism situation that existed. So yeah, um, the file that was a catastrophe under her under her uh, under her watch. So uh, there was not a lot of goodwill for her to even. Uh, bank on to, to kind of stick around. And I recognize she, she put out a statement about, um, you know, she's going through some mental health situation. So that's, that's, uh, you know, that's sad to hear, but uh, I think the, uh, it was going to be hard for her regardless to come back into, um, into cabinet at this point. Uh, and so, you know, you have Militia Fulton who's now sort of the, the Ottawa area uh, uh, MP or sort of minister in cabinet uh, continue to be, uh, but you know, there's going to be some chance for, like, you know, your local area MP, uh, MPP in, in Hamilton with Lumsden is now the Minister for Tourism and, and Sports. So an opportunity to kind of get a different perspective, different energy and, and focus into that portfolio. Yeah, there were two examples, I guess, at least two, I guess, really, Mohammed, of uh, the Premier rewarding people for uh, doing what some thought was the impossible. Uh, Neil Lumsden, of course, winning Hamilton East Stony Creek. That was the seat previously held by Paul Miller, of course, of the NDP. And uh, George Perry, the uh, the former mayor of Timmins, who had defeated uh, New Democrat Gilles Bisson, who seems uh, he's been in the legislature forever, as far as I could recall. Uh, but you know, when you when you get that, I mean, it was a huge victory anyway. But those are two particular seats that they didn't expect to win that they did, and and clearly the premier is rewarding those two gentlemen. Yeah, that's pretty standard uh, practice in any new after an election. So 
you know, when, when all the, the senior advisors to the, to the leader are going to be planning out, okay, like, look, we, we got to reward our, our strongest performers and those who are our trusted allies, you know, the premier or even in a federal level of prime minister <clears throat> will look to make sure that certain people are rewarded. But they also got to look at, to your point, of those who, who won very tough writings. And there's an opportunity to make them, you know, when you make them a minister, they have an opportunity to have more profile. They get to have, you know, the good news announcements and such to demonstrate, look, like this is this is a big deal. Like you are now the voice of this area that we have not done very well in. Now build out the stakeholder relations, build out our support base, build out our brand uh, in this riding and in this area that we just have struggled in historically, right? So you look at Hamilton, the interior of Hamilton being one for, for a long time for the PCs, it's, it's, it's the NDP heartland. Uh, and you look at you know Timmins being one and others. So there's a, there's this is recognition of, of of that. And look, I think Graydon Smith is going to make a, a very good uh, minister. I think Lumsden also has the potential as well. So uh, regardless, I think um, you know you also don't want to just uh, you know appoint people for the sake of it, but also uh, recognizing to the premier's comment, you know, to have uh, representation with uh, Minister Charmaine Williams uh, from Brampton, and I think it's also a reckoning of, of two ministers from Brampton. I can't remember when, you know, at this point in the government that we had two ministers from the city of Brampton, usually it's only one. Um, so again, a recognition of the region that delivered. Uh, it was a tip of the hat to them saying, look, thank you. And here's your reward. It's a 30 member cabinet. And, and I know some people are just going to get upset and say, well, it's too big. But you, know, you get a huge majority like that. Uh, you know, you've got to make some accommodation for that. And he's done that. I think anybody who's upset about that, that'll pass in a couple of days. But you've got 30 people in the cabinet room right now, Mohammed. But there's been always an inner circle with the premier, prime minister, whatever the case might be. Uh, and and Christine Elliott, of course, was was key in that last Ford administration, actually to add, add some stability. Who do you figure are the, the key members, the, the ones that he would lean on here? Uh, Sylvia Jones comes to mind right off the bat, and she was very loyal to him, especially during the ups and downs of the COVID crisis and, and the, the shutdowns and everything else. She was usually at those press conferences. And, and she's got that double portfolio right now. Uh, but who else is... is has the premier's ear you know i think the premier uh is probably relying a lot on at this point you know the names that didn't move as senior cabinet roles so you know think about carolyn monroney sylvia jones prime minister Kari at treasury board vic fidelli at the ministry of economic development that is a very important portfolio for this ministry he's a very, uh, his premier because he's very much on the pro-business side and it's been the, the the headline generating portfolio for over the last uh, 12 months for him so uh, another key one, Peter Bettenfali is obviously a very close one who has the ear uh, of, of the premier. And, and I think, you know, for, for all intents and purposes, Steve Clark is going to have remained to have an outsized influence with, with the premier from a housing perspective and municipal affairs. You know, the premier is very much tuned or cares about the municipal angle, as we know very well. His very is it his desires around Toronto City Council and all that stuff that's gone on. And he was a city councillor. So. Yeah, for municipal, it's it's very important. So you know he has a, a number of those uh, uh, ministers around the cabinet table that are going to be close to him, and then he will have his sort of senior advisors within the premier's office that will uh, sort you know provide that dual perspective uh, for him. 
Steve Clark is interesting. Uh, as you mentioned, he, with municipal government experience, and of course he was municipal affairs minister in the last uh, Ford government, uh, but there's some controversy there about, as you say, not just housing, which is going to be a key element here, uh, but about uh, urban boundary expansion. Uh, there's there's quite a, a thing going on, as you know, in Hamilton right now, uh, where city council says there are, it will be no urban boundary expansion in the city of Hamilton. Uh, minister Clark says, uh, don't count your horses there, buddy. He says, we may have to do that anyway. He may overrule that. Uh, so I, I guess that's kind of bad news for Hamilton City Council to know that uh, Clark is back. He's in the same portfolio and probably sticking to his guns. Yeah, and I think uh, this government is now a little bit more emboldened to to take on some of these more challenging fights. I know the city of Ottawa has also their urban boundary plan as well for, for yeah. uh, consideration as well. So, uh, look, I think it's no shocker, and they weren't shy about saying this, that they're going to steamroll where they think they need steamroll. They've done that in the past four years. So uh, when councils like Hamilton and others, uh, be prepared because you have more of a bold government, you have a more bold minister and premier that's going to uh, drive and have their sort of perspective. And and now we're looking at the uh, the eventual construction of the highway, the two highways. So uh, that's also going to continue to require a heavy hand, probably from the from the Ontario government to drive it in and, and to see it succeed, because that is a, um, a centerpiece of this government's sort of plan of attack for the next five to ten years. Well, let's talk about that. There's a, an old saying in politics, as you know, that says winning is easy, governing is difficult. Uh, and and now they have to govern, and uh, there's some pretty tough choices. We talked about the urban boundary expansion, certainly housing, uh, but we just talked about George Peary a few minutes ago, who uh, won the seat against Gilles Besson. He is the uh, Minister of Mines uh, right now, and that brings into question the ring of fire. I know the Premier was pretty adamant about what he wanted to do there. We're going to build a road, we're going to bring jobs, we're going to mine all the stuff there that we need to make batteries for EVs, etc. It was a, 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 a pretty interesting enterprise. Uh, now you've got to do it. And uh, there's a lot of work to be done there. Uh, first of all, uh, most of the Aboriginal and Indigenous groups up there said, uh, it's not your land, it's ours. And the resources in it are ours too. So there's some pretty heavy-duty negotiations going to have to take place there before that gets done. Yeah, and I'll give credit credit to do that. They finally split up the Indigenous Affairs portfolio away. So Rickford is going to hold that portfolio and they have a mind mm -hmm. different because, you know, if anyone who's living under a rock hasn't realized, but like indigenous issues are very, very important and must be dealt with in a very serious, delicate and respectful manner. Uh, so this Ontario government for them to achieve success remotely, look, no one has achieved success in the ring of fire. Uh, and it's sort of the, the, the projects that, that are there that, you know, people are pessimistic, about anything's ever going to happen there. So really, you know, uh, you got to do it. Like you got to make sure it happens or, or, you know, people don't have a lot of high expectations, so it may not help, help drive it. But uh, there's also an interesting perspective now from sort of an industry perspective that uh, critical minerals are sort of quintessential now for the EV future, the automotive future in, in Ontario and Canada. You know, global automakers are, are looking at Canada saying, well, look, we see this critical mineral strategy that the federal government is trying to put together and you're trying to put together in Ontario. You know, we want in on this because we're trying to be competitive. We want to be there at the front of of the pack when it comes to electric vehicle production. Uh, so how can we make this work? And, and so there's a lot of uh, serious global and domestic interest to try and see this through. So it may be the thing that pushes this forward. Uh, I, I'm one of those skeptics of like, whether this government can actually get that done uh, because everyone has sort of promised uh, action on that. But until they get the indigenous angle correct, they get some of the environmental components correct and just strictly just 
pony up the money that's going to be needed here because it's not going to be easy. Uh, it's not going to be cheap and it's not going to be, uh, you know, someone else is going to pay for it kind of thing. It ha- the government has to have a heavy hand in there. And they're lucky that the, the federal government is very keen to seeing uh, some of this action on here on critical minerals. So, you know, they do have a good partnership when it comes to, you know, things around the automotive and manufacturing sector. So uh, perhaps there is a, a good storm coming here for them to see success. It's got to be a different mindset for this government, though, as opposed to the first term, because yeah, uh, uh, I know in the first term, Ford was always saying, you know, promises made, promises kept. But most of what he promised in that campaign when he became premier the first time was to tear down stuff. I'm going to get rid of Kathleen Wynne's uh, tax. I'm going to get rid of the cap and trade. I'm going to get rid of this uh, yada, yada, yada. And, uh, and, and he did an awful lot of that, uh, including getting rid of the EVs and charging stations. He's had to reverse on that. But this term... It's about building stuff, uh, the two highway projects, the two big ones anyway, and as you mentioned, the Ring of Fire. Uh, and that's where the difficulty is going to come in because there are people that are in opposition to all of those projects uh, that could make things pretty messy for them with court challenges and, and a number of other initiatives. Yeah, and, and, and this is where it becomes more challenging and difficult, but it requires commitment. It's got the political will has to be there. And, and with the four-year runway, uh, you know, this government should think about like getting their act going right away. Don't drag your feet for eight to 12 months, then you lose another year. And then you really only have two good years left before you're in the final year. And everyone's sort of like counting their chickens before to see like, oh, like let's, uh, we can, we can wait this out and we not, let's not move forward um, at the last year of the government. So, you know, this Ford has to kind of get aggressive here and, and get going. Uh, if you don't, you will have a hard time succeeding. Um, you know, there's also the, the transit projects within the GTA on the subways. Um, there's an LRT project out in Ottawa. There is, you know, there's a whole host of things that are, are needing to be addressed um, in Ontario and sort of in the power side of things. I like think you need to increase the power generation. And we just saw that the news story in, in, um, in the election with Windsor losing a $2.5 billion manufacturing project because there wasn't ele- enough electricity because of the cuts that. Doug Ford made uh, in his first days of, in office. So, you know, there are repercussions that we're now facing because of his choices of being a cutter. Uh, and now he wants to build. So he needs to deliver on that building because, you know, as a province, we can't afford to, to keep waiting and waiting and waiting and seeing, you know, electricity prices go up and seeing investment walk out the door and, and such like that. Right. So it's, it's pressures on just because he won a government does not mean that the pressure's off and he's got to deliver now. You mentioned he wants to hit the ground running on this. Uh, they are going back to work uh, because they have to pass the budget, uh, and and that's only going to take a couple of days. Do you anticipate that uh, once they leave, they're going to come back early in September, shortly after Labor Day? And suppose because some parties, of course, have dragged this out sometimes to late September, early October before they get back to work after a summer recess. Uh, history suggests that they won't come back early in September. Uh, they've they've enjoyed taking quick breaks and proroguing and and such like that in their first term. So. I suspect they'll 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 uh, return um, as late as possible when they need to uh, to give themselves a little more time. Look, and, and and I'll be fair to to political staff that who and some of the MPPs who just who've been on sort of working overdrive uh, for a very long time because of the pandemic. So you know I can I can be sympathetic as well to them who you know kind of need a, a bit of a mental break. Uh, in the early days before they can get really into the planning and nitty-gritty, which is going to probably start more intimately into another level in, in August. Uh, you know, expect the similar kind of at, at, at other levels of government uh, across the country. Uh, so I don't suspect they'll come back very early. You know, they'll get this budget passed and then they'll start planning to see, okay, what do we need to do for the fall economic statement? What are some early initiatives that we can get going? 
Um, and how do we kind of uh, hit the ground running when the legislature returns? And then, and as well as I mentioned, they may come back with the, another mini cabinet shuffle uh, in September just because they didn't have the, the capacity to identify the right people for the right portfolios this time around. Uh, and so they may have put some second more thought um, come September. But that's an if. Uh, and, and so we'll have to kind of see how this government sort of unfolds and, and deliver some of the early messaging about when they want to get going, what they want to get going on, uh, and how they will do that. Muhammad Ali uh, from uh, Crestview Strategies, of course, a senior consultant there with uh, his eye on what's going on at Queen's Park. Thanks so much, Muhammad. Uh, enjoy the week, and we'll talk again soon. Thanks for having me. Bye. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Outrage and the uh, reaction to the Roe versus Wade decision by the U.S. Supreme Court continued over the weekend. Uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau called the U.S. Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe versus Wade uh, horrific. As a matter of fact, uh, Trudeau says it's an attack on women's freedoms and, in fact, attack on everybody's rights and freedoms. It shows how much standing up and fighting for rights matters every day, that we can't take anything for granted, that we need to continue to stand strong to defend everybody's rights and freedoms in Canada and where we are here internationally, standing up internationally as well, which Canada will do, whether it's uh, fighting for women's rights here in Africa or supporting people fighting for their rights in the United States and elsewhere. The uh, the reaction, of course, is uh, shocking in some cases and, and global. Uh, leaders from all over the world, of course, are talking about the decision and the implications. Joining us to talk about this is Reggie Giacchini. Reggie is the Washington correspondent for Global News, who's uh, actually not in Washington, but down in uh, Nashville, Tennessee, uh, getting some reaction. Uh, Reggie, on a very busy day, thanks for taking some time for it. Really appreciate it. Good morning. Right. Listen, this was not totally unexpected. We had the leaked document, the draft, of course, a couple of weeks or months ago, I guess now, uh, that this is probably the way the court was going to rule. I, as somebody who's been covering these things for a long time, are you surprised at the reaction, nonetheless, that when it was finally announced on Friday? I'm not surprised at the reaction that we are seeing. This was expected. Both sides were preparing for this. Uh, I think what is remarkable to see is even though the Supreme Court came down with this iron fist, uh, essentially eliminating 50 years of precedent in this country, how strong-willed some of the people on both sides are uh, in looking forward to how to deal with this. Those who are pro-abortion and abortion advocates say that even though the court has made this decision, they fully intend to fight as hard and as far as they can, whether that is in Congress, whether that is by uh, starting up more uh, legal suits uh, against the states. This, this, This almost feels like a story that it could have been over on day one, and it really is only just beginning. Yeah, and that's the, uh, the the sense I got as well. Uh, t- talk to us about, maybe explain to our listeners, uh, why you're in Tennessee right now. It's what they call a trigger state. Yeah, Tennessee has a trigger uh, ban. So essentially, when the Supreme Court put its ruling down, uh, it allowed for Tennessee to go back to a law that was on the books uh, that was a so-called heartbeat law, bringing abortions down to six weeks. That's being argued uh, in the appellant court right now. Uh, but ultimately, even if that decision doesn't show up within the next 30 days, Tennessee becomes one of those states where abortion will be fully outlawed, and there is no exception in this state for rape or for incest, only for if the mother's life is in danger. So there is a real concern here amongst not only the women in the state, but for the abortion providers themselves to say that this could and will likely create a health care crisis that starts in Tennessee and extends to every other state that puts these bans in place. 
Now, my understanding is 26 of the 50 states also have these trigger laws in various forms. So this is essentially when the decision came down Friday, half of the country reverted back to old laws. Is that it? Absolutely. And look, some of these laws, Bill, um, are not new. You know, the Tennessee heartbeat law was in 2020. It followed the Texas heartbeat law in and around 2020. But in Michigan, they have a law banning abortions on the books from the early 1930s that the Republican state government is really trying to bring back into today's time. In Wisconsin, their bans on abortion are from laws that date back to the mid-1800s. And you have governors who are Democrats in both states now going to the Supreme Court to say that this needs to be updated. We need to ensure that whatever happened at the highest court in Washington uh, does not have to be reinterpreted into our state laws. So you can imagine that there are going to be additional legal challenges that are filed uh, in some of these states that are Democratic-led, held by Republicans, but say, look, we need to be able to make our own decisions here. Reggie, as, as you've talked to folks, and you're down in Nashville, of course, today uh, and through the week, it's not just a Democratic-Republican thing here, is it? Because I know there are some Republicans that were upset, should we say, uh, by the by the court's decision. Yeah. We seem to be having some technical difficulties here. We'll try to hook up with Reggie in just a second. Uh, Reggie Cicchini, of course, is in Nashville, Tennessee, uh, talking to people and getting their reaction to what's going on. And as uh, he just explained to us, uh, this is a trigger state. Uh, so as soon as the uh, announcement was made by the uh, Supreme Court on Friday, uh, they triggered the, the reaction. And basically, the, the laws on the books, the, the federal law, the protection that the Supreme Court had previously granted uh, for abortion uh, was wiped out. And 26 of these states have uh, trigger laws. So they've gone back, as Reggie mentioned, sometimes up to 100 years uh, and say that's the law right now. And, of course, it's it's a, a ruling uh, that bans abortions in these particular states. So that's somewhat problematic, as you might expect. Uh, and we're trying to get the uh, the reaction from uh, the folks that are going to be involved in this and the industry as well uh, that are, are talking about uh, how this is going to respond. And uh, we're just trying to hook up with Reggie once again and uh, and see if we can get the, that reaction and uh, how this may actually play out, because there's a lot of concern about what's going to happen going forward here. Uh, you know, the, the ruling is the ruling. But even at that, uh, the concern we seem to have now is that uh, there seems to be a, a, a concern about the interpretation of this. Uh, the, the ruling by the court was six to three, six, uh, obviously, you know, banning, overturning Roe versus Wade uh, and three did, did not. But uh, there's differing views of the opinion, even among the six that voted to overturn Roe versus Wade, about what the implications of this are long term. Uh, in certain states, and uh, that's causing a great deal of concern. I'm sure we've all seen uh, over the last couple of days uh, on some of the clips on the news about exactly what's going on. I mean, they're still marching in the streets, uh, not just in Washington, but uh, places right across North America and right across the world about this. Uh, and we've got Reggie back. Okay, that's good. Sorry for the interruption here. Uh, it, it, as you mentioned, this is not a partisan issue, is it, Reggie? This is not a Democrat-Republican issue necessarily. I know that some Republicans actually were on the record as saying that they were upset about this. But on the other hand, uh, as you were reporting, they voted for these judges to go onto the Supreme Court. What did they expect was going to happen? Yeah, I mean, look, and this is a, this really is, um, you know, an issue that, that states are having to deal with now because uh, we have to remember that public sentiment is for uh, allowing abortion access to be, um, you know, obtained by any American, 60 percent of the country is in favor of um, allowing for uh, a woman to be able to receive an abortion. So even in these Republican-held states, they understand that the Republican leaders may be going against 
uh, public opinion here. Uh, and so that's why this conversation in some places uh, is really returning to the, look, we need to put this into the hands of the residents and not put this into the hands of unelected judges. And, and there was an inevitability to this because, as you say, they all voted for the, the Trump uh, nominees for the Supreme Court, and they knew this was on the docket. So, I mean, the, the, you know, how the, 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 it was pretty, I, I pretty well established, I guess, that this is the way this was go actually going to go. But I wanted to ask you, Reggie, about the, the reaction we're hearing from some of the uh, uh, protesters in cities right across North America right now about the interpretation of this. And, and Alito himself... Uh, uh, read the decision said, look, this is only about abortion. Uh, Chief Justice Roberts said the same thing. It, it doesn't go any further than this. Clarence Thomas, however, uh, one of the senior members on the court, uh, suggested that they want to start considering other things like same-sex marriage, even even uh, same-sex relationships right now, and perhaps uh, looking at those and the, and the legal representation for those too. So that's it, it's a Pandora's box that's open here right now, and we don't quite know how the court's going to go, do we? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and that really has become a fear because, look, as this country understood something was going to happen uh, with Roe, there was still a belief that this might not ever happen. And now that it did, you're right, this Pandora's box, this door has been opened to the potential rollback of other rights uh, around the country. But what's interesting here is that four of the justices who uh, who issued their concurrent statements with the ruling uh, in Roe v. Wade said that, look, this is just about Roe. This has nothing to do with other rights that are guaranteed to Americans because Roe is not enshrined in the U.S. Constitution. But as Justice Thomas points out, uh, that the issues of same-sex marriage, the issues of access to contraception, those are also not laid out uh, kind of in word by the, uh, by the Constitution. He's looking at it in kind of a how the founding fathers of the United States wanted this country to go. And obviously, same-sex marriage and contraception just were not things when the United States was founded. So there is a real fear here that this could wind up back before the Supreme Court because some of these nominees uh, who became Supreme Court justices, when they were in their hearings, said that Roe was precedent. And now here they are ending that precedent, going back on what their words, at least to, their, uh, to the nominating uh, uh, panel was, so, yeah, there's a real fear here that more Americans potentially themselves without rights. Well, and I know that's the reaction uh, from some of the Democrats uh, and some of the people that were on that committee, of course, uh, when they were investigating some of Trump's appointees, including uh, Gorsuch and others uh, and Kavanaugh. Uh, you know, the accusation now is that, look, at these people just said what they had to say to get the nomination. And, and now they've, they've, they've reversed this. So, but, you know, which way were they really thinking when they, they answered those questions? Uh, not much you could do about it, I guess, at this stage. Uh, but at the same time, you have to wonder what's going on. And, and Thomas's co comments, Reggie, I'm, I'm glad you guys focused on that, because what he seemed to be doing was almost challenging the states. Bring us a law that we can get our teeth into about some of these other things like same-sex marriage. Uh, and that's all it would take for it to get to the court, isn't it? For a state to pass a law like that, somebody will challenge it, and it's going to end up in front of, on the docket for the Supreme Court. So uh, we don't really know where this is going to go or how soon these guys may actually deal with this. Yeah, absolutely. And look, we've seen that there have been state legislatures in Republican-held states that have really worked to try and make it, um, you know, roll the country back by several years, if not by several decades. So there are general concerns here uh, amongst, um, you know, the kind of judicial world and amongst Democrats that there could be a rogue Republican-held state that opts to try uh, and, and overturn Obergefell, which would, uh, you know, stop same-sex marriage from being recognized. 
stop uh, uh, um, unfettered access to, to contraception, that there is a fear that this could wind up before the Supreme Court. And now that we've seen SCOTUS move in this direction, would they go back on their words once again by saying, well, precedent is set, uh, we don't need to change that? Yeah, that's a real question. Uh, and some legal scholars have said, hey, I would have never thought Roe was going to be overturned, but come back to me in 50 years and we'll talk about other precedents that may no longer exist. Reggie, what kind of an impact do you think this is going to have on the midterm elections in November? Uh, uh, as I look at the people that are protesting in streets, right in cities and towns right across America these days, uh, it's it's got to have an impact on, on, on their vote come November. Well, absolutely. look, Democrats have already said, and House Speaker Nancy Pelosi made this clear on Friday, that Roe is now on the ballot uh, in the midterms. Uh, and that this is going to be what they hope to be a motivating factor to get their base out, uh, potentially to change up the, 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 the kind of of Washington and put more legislators in place that will have the same kind of mindset as Americans. This is something uh, that, that is going to become a big player. The problem here is, Bill, yes, this is a huge topic right now, but a couple of weeks ago, the huge topic was gun legislation. A couple of weeks before that, the huge topic was tackling inflation. So this is problematic for the Democrats who have really been having a hard time honing in on the message uh, and getting Democrats kind of in a place where Democrats have been working for them. So this will be a top ticket item. Does it build that momentum? Polling shows that only one in three Americans say that they would change their vote. And only 50 percent of Democrats say that this is something that's actually going to get them out to the ballots. Uh, one of the more controversial reactions, of course, came from an Illinois uh, representative uh, in Congress uh, who suggested that the Supreme Court decision was a, quote, victory for white life, uh, which is only going to polarize this thing even more, I would think, Reggie. Yeah, absolutely. And look, her team pushed back to say that this was, um, you know, this was misspoken and she meant to say uh, right for life. But obviously, uh, you know, given the kind of the, the tensions and the atmosphere that exists around this country right now, uh, even misspeaking, if it was unintentional, uh, is enough. Uh, this has been, uh, you know, a Republican Party that has been coming after women, coming after people uh, who are of color, because we know that this decision from the Supreme Court is ultimately going to impact women of color and low-income families the most. So words, um, you know, in a politically charged uh, era really can make a big difference. I think what's going to be important now is to uh, look at what happens after the Supreme Court decision. Look at the lawsuits that are going to be filed now, potentially to stop interstate travel to get an abortion, potentially to stop abortion pills from being ma uh, mailed out. These are the things that people in this country, and particularly Democrats, Bill, are going to be focused on. Reggie, what are you hearing of the, per the people in the street? I mean, you've been in Tennessee right now, which is one of the most small-c conservative states in the Union. What, what reaction are you seeing? Look, there's fear. Uh, we've spoken with women who live in the state who have dealt with unexpected pregnancies, uh, who who knew that they were able to uh, go out and deal with the own uh, the issues uh, that they knew were going to impact their lives and understanding that this doesn't exist for women anymore. There is a legitimate fear here amongst the women that we have spoken to that this is going to create not just a healthcare crisis. It's going to create a mental health crisis. It's going to create a financial crisis for so many of these families who are now left to expand with the mental trauma, uh, if you are raped or you are a victim of incest, you're not going to be able to, um, you know, to get rid of the fact that you are pregnant. This is an issue, sure, in the small but also in bigger conservative states like in Kentucky or in South Dakota. Uh, think about it. Governor Christy Nome over the weekend said that in the case of rape and incest, one wrong shouldn't be replaced by another wrong. That is how hard some of the Republicans are going on this right now.
A uh, very fluid story, and uh, I'm so glad you could uh, spare some time with us today. I, I know we'll be watching for your reporting on uh, Global National at 6.30 tonight to get the latest on this, Reggie. Stay well, and uh, we'll talk again soon. Thanks, Bill. Take care. Reggie Giacchini, Washington correspondent for Global, who's in Nashville, Tennessee right now, one of those trigger states that have uh, reverted back to uh, anti-abortion laws. Uh, 26 other states uh, doing the same sort of thing these days. So uh, we'll wait for developments on that. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.